Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for September 2018. I'm one of the editors at the journal, Mark Freeman, and I'm joined by my co-host, writer, academic and programmer, Eloise Ross. Hi, Mark. Oh, you almost forgot me. <laughs> and in our rotating third chair this month, we have writer and academic, Jessica Balanzategui. Jess, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. On today's show, we're going to be discussing the latest Paul Feig film, A Simple Favour, where Anna Kendrick makes an instant friend in Blake Lively, looks after her child as the aforementioned Simple Favour, and then investigates Lively's subsequent disappearance. We'll then revisit one of the great classics of early cinema, Carl Dreyer's creepy experimental vampire from 1932. And finally, on the back of an excellent Melbourne Cinematheque retrospective spearheaded by our very own Eloise Ross, we look at the films of Ida Lupino, We'll end, as always, on our recommendations for the month of September. And for patrons of Senses of Cinema, in our bonus today, we'll turn our attention back to Paul Feig and look at his career, his comedy, and his fixation with Melissa McCarthy. (laughs) So let's get things underway. A Simple Favour introduces us to Stephanie Smothers, played by Anna Kendrick, a super-efficient, obnoxiously perky widow and mummy vlogger who meets the controlled, icy executive Emily Nelson, played by Blake Lively, as they both arrive to pick up their young sons from school. A friendship of sorts develops between them, and Stephanie also takes something of a shine to Emily's husband, Sean, played by Henry Golding. Stephanie agrees to look after Emily's child one afternoon, but Emily never returns, prompting Steph to investigate the mysterious circumstances surrounding her new BFF's abrupt disappearance. It's part mystery, part comedy, and for my money, enjoyably ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, Eloise, do you agree or no? <laughs> uh, my answer, I suppose, is qualified. Uh, I just wanted to begin by saying that I feel like it's impossible to talk about the merits of this film without talking about the ending. So mm. is it okay if we all discuss where it goes in the end and just our listeners can skip ahead if they haven't seen it? That would make sense. So so we'll, we'll a quick spoiler warning because... Yeah. A little bit like the films that it sort of in the subgenre belongs to, the 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 denouement is kind of part of the whole deal. Yeah, so if that's you don't true. want to know the end, <laughs> skip this segment. Come back in about fifteen minutes. Yeah, so I feel like this film is doing something that a lot of films, you know, from where it has um, has done, which is try and has set you know set up you know the the villain and then the innocent person, and that they kind of get along and that they have a spat. But then, you know, it turns out that, in fact, the innocent one was was planning it all along and that that's what it's trying to do. And I just don't think it does that very well in that sense. There are so many other films that do it better and the one that I was drawn to the most is Wild Things from 19, the 1998, I think it is, that great oh, 1990s. I haven't thought about that film for such a long <laughs> time. It's so good. Wow, that. you've reawakened something in my subconscious. Please yes. go and rewatch it. Yeah, but it's just so great. I just couldn't buy everyone's, that everyone was planning, you know, to an intelligence level that they weren't showing in this film. It just did seem to be like incredibly messy in that sense. Yeah. It was extremely messy. I totally (laughs) agree with that. And it it feels very strange for a mystery thriller when a key attraction of a mystery thriller, especially some of the recent mystery thrillers that this film is kind of um, communicating with, like Gone Girl. Obviously, a lot of critics have compared it to Gone Girl. Mm. And it does very self-reflexively, I think, play with and revise... um, Gone Girl, quite obviously, but like the key attraction of films like that is that they have a really tight, rewarding plot that um, is kind of one step ahead of us the whole time, whereas this film kind of 
completely obliterates that because it is such a mess. But I actually kind of enjoyed that. It was so (laughs) gleeful in its just messiness and it gets messier and messier as each twist and turn is revealed and I kind of enjoyed it. I just felt like the revelations of the twists and turns were really poorly managed because in this kind of plot format, what you have generally is where you think that everyone, that, you know, maybe two people are operating together, but then there's a twist and it's two other people, but then someone is double crossing everyone and they come out on top. And that seemed to be really not adhered to and that it was just back and forth. And I had no idea where anyone's allegiances kind of lay in this mm. film. It and was, it, That yeah. really made no sense at all. And I couldn't <laughs> see where the, you know, I mean, the ultimate trump card that was played, it wasn't even really a trump card in the end because it, the ending was just kind of like nothing, yeah. I felt. And that, that no one came out on the very top, essentially. No, no. Yeah, it was so hard to pinpoint what the three lead characters were actually after with all this subterfuge and plotting and it was yeah really hard to be like okay what's the end goal for all of you here I'm not really sure I think the plot was the the end goal like (laughs) we need to do stuff Mm. Um, which meant that a lot of it and like you Jess I kind of enjoyed it but I sort of surrendered all notions of like quality (laughs) or motivation or anything. It was like, now to do some other stuff. And so Mm. it's literally just them running around making up plots or inventing new schemes or producing random other people from Mm. their mysterious pasts just to do things. None of it is motivated. It is. It feels like it was written on the fly. <laughs> hey, this is a bit dull. Can we give them a another secret? Sure. Why don't Why don't we match this character up with that character? This constant sort of roundelay of people mm. kind of connecting to each other, but really betraying each other. On and on and on. It was dumb as hell. Um, and and in the end, I just sort of went along with it as probably ultimately a fairly forgettable thing, but. It was sort of pleasurable at the time. Mm. Yeah, I just couldn't... I I mean, I think that I agree with you and that there was an element of camp in this film and that there is, you know, obviously a connection to a whole lot of other, you know, female roles played in history that that is really quite strong. But the lack of organisation in what the characters were doing just really Mm. didn't work for me. And I felt like it was, even though it was drawing from a history of these films about, you know, plots and duplicity and whatnot, that... It was also disconnected from it. There's one moment where Blake Lively, you know, from what we think, Anna Kendrick still thinks that she's dead. And then, you know, Anna Kendrick is at her grave and then Blake Lively walks up behind her. And they have this, like, meeting where there's no element of surprise and no one raises their voice. It's strange, that moment. And it's like Anna Kendrick... And don't is, they have prepared martinis as well? Yes. Yeah, yeah, because that's a thing. As though Anna Kendrick knew all along that this is where they were going to plan to meet up. And that's what I thought. And I was like, cool, this is going to be great. Mm. They were planning this all along. You know, screw the husband. Yeah. But then it turns out that this is the first time Anna Kendrick has heard of Blake Lively being alive again. Right. And I'm just <laughs> like, this is completely disconnected from what makes these movies so great, which is you finally realising, coming along too late to the fact that these people have made this huge plan all along and that they're way more intelligent than than the spectator, you know, and there was none of that. Like, Mm. I was always ahead of the narrative and that's not what the joy of these movies is to me. I I kind of, like, coming back to what I was saying before, I kind of liked the fact that at every moment we think this is the moment where everything gets tied up very neatly and we go, oh, that's the trick the film's been playing on us. 
it unravels all over again. And the trick that it's actually playing is none of this really <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. And we're not going to get that satisfaction of um, this is how all these really loose and meandering kind of narrative threads come yeah. together again. Because I guess the real joy of this film is, is seeing Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively play off each other. Because yeah. that was really oh, yeah. delightful. Yeah. I mean, and maybe it, that's what Paul Feig is doing in all of his films. Mm. It's just saying, and I, I think we'll talk about this again, but he's just saying... These are two great actors. Let's see what they do together. Yep. And the narratives never really matter at mm. the end of the day. And even their interactions, they are so messy. Like Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively are definitely not a natural fit. No. Yep. And the rhythm of their interactions is very kind of uh, disjunctive and even off-putting sometimes, yeah. like the film itself. Yeah. Yeah. But, and it was such a strange experience seeing this film at the Lido with a pretty full audience soon after it came out because... That it was very unclear. You could tell the whole audience was a bit kind of unsure of when we're meant to be laughing, when yeah. we're meant to be horrified, when we're meant to be shocked. So there'd sometimes be um, a kind of a beat where we were probably meant to be laughing and there'd just kind of be silence and maybe a bit <laughs> yeah. of delayed, oh. Yeah. But at the same time, when it ended, I heard these two people behind me go, oh, I actually really liked that. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of felt the same way because it was just playing this constant game with our expectations and emotions, yeah. it's really hard to engage with it as just a comedy or just a mystery thriller because it's kind of vacillating between them the whole time. And I had a real problem if, if I, well, I had plenty of problems with it, but if I had a, a major problem, it was those tonal shifts. It just, <laughs> it felt like he still wanted to do his other comedies, but the film was asking us in some ways to take us at least take it at least moderately seriously. Yeah, it's very hard to pinpoint what his yeah. intentions and were. And so there'd be this big dramatic moment or, you know, somebody would get shot or killed or some big revelation would happen and then there'd be the undercutting of it with some dumb one-liner and you'd think, well, how, how am I supposed to read this? You want me to invest in the characters and invest in the mystery, but you keep telling me that the mystery's dumb and, well, yeah, the mystery is dumb, but I can't engage with the mystery if you keep telling me that it's silly. So, I quite liked what, what he did with the Andrew Rannells character. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, yes. You know, using this kind of um, archetypal character who is usually a woman, who is the caddy town gossip mm. kind of thing, but instead putting Andrew Rannells in the role, who is playing a straight man with a child, yeah. but still kind of brings his, like, very famous um, camp gay attitude to mm. the role. And that just kind of playing with people's expectations in that yeah. sense was was very strong, I thought. And mm. I enjoyed him yeah. quite a lot. I would have loved yeah. to see more of his character, actually. Yeah, yeah he did kind of disappear for the whole middle, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. yeah. And that, that was actually one of the moments I was thinking of at the very, at the climax when he, I won't say exactly what happened, so we don't spoil mm. the whole film, but when he kind of dramatically reappears to kind of save the day to some extent. But at that moment, which was kind of set up as both very, very tense, very, very melodramatic, and I think meant to be obviously very, very funny at the same time, mm. the audience was just kind of like, there's a moment where we're clearly meant to laugh, but the audience was in silence, just kind of obviously completely discombobulated about yeah. <laughs> everything that was unfolding. Yeah. So, but... Yes, he was one of the highlights, definitely, for me as well. Yeah, and what about the soundtrack? I mean, people have noted that as being quite, you know, significant. It's fun. Mm. I don't think it was doing anything very revolutionary. No. Um, you know, I mean, there's some Serge Gainsbourg in there. Yeah. 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 Cool, though. Just like yeah, Blake. I, I mean, oh I, I, God, I, I, I sort of, yeah. I don't know, I, I, that rubbed me the wrong way a little bit, <laughs> I think. Because, I mean, it does, it, 
it, it's directly referenced in the film, this idea that, you know, are you trying to diabolique me? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and this, this idea of kind of drawing the comparison between A Simple Favour and Diabolique, the, the Clouseau film, and, like, that is not a comparison you want to make <laughs> no, because no. you are going to lose. <laughs> so the fact that you've got this kind of Clouseau reference and then Serge Gainsbourg, you know, on the soundtrack and Anna Kendrick discovering Serge Gainsbourg and, you know, <laughs> Singing Bonnie and Clyde and, oh, uh, no. No, that was not cool for me. I'm like, oh, this is like somebody... Punching above your weight, Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, you're, you're kind of pretending that you're that cool and, and, dude, you're not. This is a really dumb film. As enjoyable as it is, it's not I mean, Diabolique, Diabolique. is incredible until the last two minutes and then it becomes an incredibly dumb film. Mm. You know, it kind of it exceeds that. And so yeah. maybe he kind of... Has a point, but no. And especially, like, filtered through Anna Kendrick's very kind of manic, all-over-the-place character who's constantly trying to, especially after Blake Lively's character disappears, like, live up to that very cool, sophisticated um, kind of persona. Yeah. It, it almost feels to me like he is acknowledging that his film is trash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, this this kind of collision of kind of trash and high art and, and trying to kind of, yeah, meld them together, especially in when it's, um, as I said at the beginning, like engaging with um, Gone Girls so kind of explicitly. Yeah. It, it feels a bit like he is kind of gleefully playing with the, the li- lowbrow, highbrow yeah. through yeah. those kind of um, references. Yeah. I hope anyway, because as you say, if it, if it is meant to be taken seriously, then uh, it is. it does feel pretty... Um, yeah. Strange. But but those comparisons with Gone Girl, like and it's an appropriate one. Like Gone Girl Girl was still kind of campy, I suppose, in its own way, but it took itself seriously. Mm. It it you bought into that film and said, All right, like I know this is kind of dumb, but I'm going with it. This one feels more like the girl on the train. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, where it's like you you think you're supposed to go along with it, but it's actually just really silly mm. and you can't go along with it because the tone doesn't allow you to sort of take it on board properly, you end up just kind of seeing it as, as being silly. So I'm not sure whether that holds together at the end. I also thought it had a potentially transgressive subplot in the incest kind of Oh, line. yeah. Um, <laughs> and the fact that this child is essentially like the product of incest. Yes, how, how and yeah, that it just could, throw that in there. Yeah. Just a little layer of... But it wasn't really <laughs> properly dealt... I mean, I'm not saying it has to be dealt with because obviously it's in there for comedy, but if it's in there for comedy, then why is it even in there? Yeah. Um, what's the point? I mean, maybe it's kind of great in the fact that it's gotten into this mainstream American movie yeah. anyway without any recourse <laughs> to, yes. you know, kind of owning up to it. Maybe that's enough. Yeah. I don't know. I mean... Mm. That is a that kind poor of kid. <laughs> no, no, surprising element. Like, okay, then. Yeah. like where did that come? And from? then it's yeah, it's pretty much totally played as comedy. That big revelation, which yeah. is yeah, yeah, yeah. There's you know, there's nothing, and then there's a little sense that you know Blake Lively is going to broadcast that story, yeah. and that never happens. That's kind of a loose yeah. end that's never used as any kind of bargaining, you know, kind of material, which it could have been. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a peculiar film. I, I think it sounds like I enjoyed it more than both of you. <laughs> like I, I, I kind of enjoyed the fact that the the twisting and turning and constantly setting you off balance kind of tone was the key attraction rather than yeah. the kind of tight plotting. Like I kind of once I realised that we weren't going to get a nice 
satisfying, very tightly mm. organised mystery thriller plot, I was like, okay, this is just um, like Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively's very kind of strange but compelling uh, energy, mix yeah. of kind of cool, manic, um, just messiness was going to set the whole tone for this film. So I kind of went along with it. But, um, yes, it, it definitely is very difficult to to put your finger on what he was trying to do with this yeah. film. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Besides, you know, showcase these two women mm. together. Yeah. Yeah. Which is Which maybe in a, enough. In a straightforward kind of buddy comedy like The Heat and, and, and some of the other films he's done, that is fine. And the, the that interaction between the two women is all that the film really needs to kind of drive things along. But in a mystery thriller that has to be really tightly plotted, yep. it does, mm. it's, it, it is a very strange fit. <laughs> yeah, just made me want to watch Wild Things again. <laughs> I want to watch that again now too, that you've reminded me of it. <laughs> okay. If you want to add to this discussion of A Simple Favour, we'd love to hear from you. So just head to facebook.com slash cinema and you can leave a comment there on our episode thread. Every night, these creatures of the abyss haunt the dwellings of the living, sowing death and ruin. He who decays into a vampire wastes away. So it is written in Carl Theodore Dreyer's first sound film, released in 1932, that contains very little dialogue but has quite effective sound effects and a lot of written vampire mythology. It tells a classic story. A young man arrives in a village and rents a room in a boarding house. From there, a haunting tale proceeds. The man is drawn out of his room to a nearby castle, spooked by shadows and deformed shapes and bodies, written curiosities telling of the undead. The film itself is filled with stunning compositions, beautiful expressionist images and is sustained by a powerful use of close-ups detailing the faces and emotions of its players, a technique similar to that he employed for his early masterpiece, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Thus it has a dreamlike sense common to many ghost stories of the time and since, including one of my favourites, John Epstein's The Fall of the House of Usher. This film screened at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image in September with a live score performed by DJ Kiara Kickdrum and I think it screens quite regularly with live score performances that enrich the film's visuals and sound effects around the world. Um, so Jess, how did you go with this new um, screening and score of Vampire? Uh, it was pretty wonderful, actually. So it was um, Kiara Kickdrum uh, ha- has a very a distinctive kind of synth-heavy style that's mm-hmm. um, on the same spectrum, I suppose, as uh, the amazing Goblin that's obviously provided provided uh, the soundtracks for um, some of the classic um, Italian giallo films like Suspiria. Uh, so it was definitely that kind of vibe, although a little bit more subdued. And it really brought out the strangeness and almost surrealist tendencies of this film Mm -hmm. in a different way. Um, So Chiara's uh, soundtrack kind of throbbed. There were these kind of bass-heavy synth um, chords kind of pulsing all the way through the film. And then uh, at certain moments it would kind of build in this ebb and flow that really went nicely with the way the visuals kind of... um, expand and contract, I suppose, mm. because this this film is um, definitely not uh, a very clearly plotted film. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it kind of uh, uh, meanders all over the place and the, the, the visual tricks and the editing um, that Drea was quite uh, 
pioneering in some of the uh, visual tricks that he has with this film, like the uh, shadows that oh, kind of appear man. in the in the barn without any uh, corporeal form to drive their actions. And the soundtrack just went really well to kind of draw out the strangeness and that really ethereal um, atmosphere that this film creates. So it really did help to, um, I think... Uh, make you experience that atmosphere in a different way. It really brought out how similar this film was to um, not just horror films, um, but films like Unchained Underloo and a lot yeah. of Louis Bunel's kind of yeah. surrealist work, Amazing. which was very, very cool. It's such an interesting film in that, you know, I'm, I have seen quite a bit of Dreyer, but had not seen this film. Mm. And have now I've gone back and I've watched it a couple of times because the first time, like it so did my head in. Yeah. Um, that I had to go back because I had to, I don't know, hold it down somehow because mm. it just felt so loose and... It's so meandering. And yeah, yeah, disconnected and strange. And then once you actually start to play around with the images and the images start to make a little bit more sense, or at least they did for me the <laughs> second time. First time, I like, I loved it visually but kind of didn't get it. Mm. And then it starts to... I, I felt, at least for me, the second time around started to cohere a little bit better... Um, and so now I'm just I'm totally in on the on the film because it's it's such a weirdly, as you say, experimental film. Mm. It is clearly influenced by you know things like Unchained um, Andalou. You know, that's a, a period of time. Uh, that that's a, a period where those uh, Bunuel films and Dali films had been coming out mm. in the late twenties and early thirties. And you can see that he's sort of picked up on that because this isn't linear. I mean, it's linear, but it's it's so dreamlike and weird uh, that it doesn't feel like it it holds together as a narrative, but I mm. don't think it's intended to. Mm. I What I get from it, I mean, obviously it's it has this beautiful expressionistic power yeah. visually, mm. but that it's not so much about narrative, you're right, That but that it's just about kind of translating this mythology of the vampire to the screen mm. and kind of bringing another story yeah. of the vampire and their existence and how they can kind of infiltrate the, you know, human being existence. Um, and that that's what it's more interested in doing is rather than presenting a story that you can kind of follow than saying, hey, this is really creepy. How can I creep you out, you know, even more? Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, rather than just saying that, you know, vampires are monsters in the form of a human being, which is part of the kind of the book that he's reading, that it actually makes you maybe feel like maybe this is happening around you yeah. kind of mm. thing and that yeah. that's what its power is. I mean, yeah. the, the, the openings of uh, Crawl, the, the information you get before the, the film proper starts, literally says this is the, the fantasy of Alan Gray, who's the mm. main character. And it lets you know, like, you know, he is a man who walks between, you know, fantasy and reality. So, mm. and I'd read that the first time I watched it and thought, oh, yeah, okay, fine. And then went, oh, this is like some weird thing between fantasy and reality. <laughs> and had forgotten, of course, that the film actually tells you, like, this is mm. this is not a coherent narrative mm. and it's intended to be mm. this kind of weird membrane, like that division mm. between fantasy and reality. Because it also says that opening crawl that he's fixated with the yes. supernatural and yeah. stories of kind of ghouls and evil. So he's obviously, and as you're kind of suggesting, drawing from surrealist techniques to bring the dream, dream logic, I guess, to the screen, mm. the logic of the unconscious to the screen. He's trying to put us within this strange state between dreaming and being awake 
and so that we can't, as an audience, fully ever um, identify where the boundary is between what is the dream and what is yeah. real and yeah. what he's actually experiencing and what's actually just kind of a product of his um, imagination, his subconscious, his yeah. deepest anxieties, that amazing um, sequence that is always very confusing. I've seen this film a few times, but it confuses me every time, the moment where he suddenly leaves his body yes. and has this extended yep. um, dream sequence about being stuck in a coffin uh, and then suddenly re-enters his body again and the kind of narrative picks up where it left off. It's it's all, um, yeah, very, very strange but very eerie and I guess gets to the heart of what gothic horror should be, that kind yeah. of the poetry of nightmares, I suppose. Yeah. Mm. yeah, and that it doesn't even really, I mean, it's not signposted in the narrative that you're meant to put these things together mm. and make sense of them. But the fact that these horrific things can occur and that maybe if even if we're dreaming these horrific things, that they can be just as like impactful as though they were really happening because essentially where is the difference? That's what Dre is saying, like yeah. mm. um, that that's what's most horrific about this film. And that bit where he's stuck in the coffin and the imagery of him looking out, like mm. just his point of view out that yeah. window with yeah. the guy. While they're nailing him in. Nailing yeah. him in is so incredible. And I could, I was like tense, yes. you know, and there's no sound there. Yeah. Or perhaps there is. I can't quite remember if there's the sound effect of the nail going in. But yeah, just visually it's so... And the film so is impressive. constantly kind of divorcing people from their bodies. Mm. So, you know, the, the importance of the concept of a shadow mm. is, is played throughout that whole film. I think you first see there's a, a, a character that only has one leg mm. and you first see him only as a mm, shadow, shadow. Mm. on the lake um, and you know, what leads Alan Gray towards, you know, the, the mysterious chateau where, you know, this woman has been attacked by a vampire and might be about to die. He's led there by shadows and we only ever see them, you know, on the wall, divorced from their kind mm. of actual bodies, um, they are on the ground as as he walks towards the chateau. That it's this whole idea of divorcing yourself from your body and being elsewhere, mm. which is you know, kind the of a commentary name. on you know the cinematic experience, right? Mm. Yeah, that yeah. we're supposed to leave ourselves and yeah. come into place this yourself world. into another space and just yeah. kind of go with yeah. it. Yeah, even yeah. the opening had the the moment that kind of propels the well, we can't even really call it a plot, but kind of propels the, um, uh, what's his name? Alan Gray. Al Alan yeah. Gray kind of leaving the hotel room to go off exploring when the uh, the father of the victim of the vampire just kind of appears in his hotel room for no apparent reason yes. to leave him this, um, the, the letter. It's just very uh, uncanny and there's no, there's no rational logic to it. So it's kind of... Yeah putting us into that dream state from the very openings, which I guess is meant to encourage us to kind of just go with the uh, meandering yeah. um, kind of flow of images. But even the, the, the movement of the camera, there's a, and, and it's early on as well, just before he gets visited by that strange man, that the camera kind of follows him into all of mm. these rooms and keeps spinning around in the room. And it has this kind of weird disorientation, sort of you you follow right up behind him as he walks into a space. Mm. And then the camera sort of glides over to the wall and then moves around in a circular motion and you start to lose your space. And, and it's a really interesting game that Dreyer seems to be playing about constantly 
having us not aware of how we can map out a space on the screen mm. because he's cutting away or he'll move the camera in a mysterious way and then suddenly he'll just cut away to the Grim Reaper who's outside holding his side mm. or, you know, it's, it's very odd. It's constantly wrong-footing you. Mm. And even the light, the, which is kind of very, uh, very bright, but somehow also kind of dusk-like and shadowy yeah. at the same time, yeah. which kind of he, he used this technique where they put, I believe, like a gauze um, a, a few feet in front of the camera, but it, cr- it creates a really uncanny effect where we the, the day there's no division between day and night and the whole film is in this kind of either dawn-like or dusk-like kind of glow. Mm. And it's really, it's, yeah, so atmospheric. Yeah. But it, even the fact that this film sits at this strange aesthetic juncture between kind of German expressionism, surrealism, and the horror genre, which would kind of take off in films soon after this, is, is just makes it such a compelling film to revisit and, yeah. and kind of reconsider, I think. Totally, because not only does it kind of come from these movements, but it has influenced so many mm. You know, film since. It's like stupid to even start talking about them, I think. But, you know, you just look at how incredible this film looks and some of those weird, you know, you're right, uncanny edits that that kind of dissociate any sense of reality or, or you know, sensical being. Yeah. And we think how influential it's, it, it is. And it's construction just like a period of the time the trailer is making that where he's got to shoot it you know, in three different languages because mm-hmm. that's the way that it was done then. Um, the fact, I, I love the fact that the, the guy who plays Alan Gray, his name's uh, Nicholas de Gunsberg, um, was the financer. Like he was this yeah. kind of wealthy barren dude who's just like, well, I've got a whole stack of money and I'll give you money for a film if I can play the lead part. And Dre says, okay, fine. So, you know, you get this kind of random... Baron, <laughs> as your as your lead actor, it's the only thing he ever did. Um, but the fact that there's almost like this patronage towards that film to try and mm. get it up and happening is so amazing. I love as well that you know apparently he had to fight with his family to let him be an actor, so he used a pseudonym <laughs> yeah. In, yeah. The, yeah. in the film. Yeah. But you know, Julian like, West, I think. He yeah, himself, but yeah. that's great too. You know yeah. that no one ever wanted him to be there. <laughs> yeah. Given what the you know essential narrative of the film is. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And is it, I think I read somewhere that, is it the the doctor, like one of the, the, the evil villains, was just some dude on a train? <laughs> on the, on on the, the Paris metro or... late yeah, at night. Go. Yeah, that's it. Which yeah. is so fitting because that, that guy is so unnerving. He's got a face, doesn't he? the way he, he stares <laughs> down the camera. And yeah, so yeah, I, I read that too, that they found him on the Paris metro. They asked him if he'd be interested in being in this film and he just stared at them, which is very <laughs> fitting because the so way... Good audition. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, this film is all about iconography, so mm. that's all that matters really is yeah. how you look essentially yeah. because its other power is in what Drea does with the camera and the editing. So, yeah. yeah. And it, and also just the, the fact that the film sits as almost partly silent film partly sound film, mm-hmm. you know, that, that there are intertitles, but there's sound, there are, you know, there's speeches, there's dialogue, not much, mm. uh, but then you'll get whole slabs of a book that get read out <laughs> as if they were intertitles. Mm. It's like the, the film is finding all of the kind of in-between places to play around in. Yeah. Fascinating. Mm. Yeah. So I think that this film has been released on Criterion, on a Criterion disc, but is also available else, elsewhere. What do you have? What copy do you have, Mark? I've got the a... Masters of Cinema. Ma- or maybe it's yeah. Masters of Cinema rather yeah. than Criterion, or maybe both. Anyway, plenty of places to hunt this film down Absolutely. and see it.
At Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe, highlighting films from the past and present to bring you exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition, so we have now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. If you subscribe at the higher level, you get all the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. It means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Senses, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Senses of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout the film year. Ida Lupino may have started out as an actor in such highly regarded films as High Sierra and They Drive By Night, but she was also one of the few women who forged a career within the classical Hollywood system as a director. Moving between noir thrillers and intense female-focused dramas, Lupino opened up narratives largely overlooked by the men that ruled that industry, including issues of rape, bigamy and unmarried motherhood. The Melbourne Cinematheque is holding a retrospective of Lupino's work, both as director and actor, across both film and television. So to start us off, Eloise, what can you tell us about the season that's playing at the Cinematheque in October? Uh, Well, my fellow curators and I, so uh, we decided that um, I think we don't generally like to do these big anniversary seasons, but this year is the 100th year of Ida Lupino's birth. Um, And so actually a lot of places around the world are putting on seasons dedicated to Lupino. So what we're finding is that there's a lot of print traffic that we're dealing with. So it's coming up in October and I'm already kind of lining up where the prints are going to come from and go to rather than just back to their archives. So that's an interesting thing to, to be a part of this year. But we've wanted to do Lupino for a number of years and it just kind of worked out this year that, that, you know, we have four weeks in the program that we could dedicate to her. So most of our seasons tend to be three weeks, some are two, but because she's just got such a large um, selection of films to choose from, you're right, as actor and director, also a screenwriter. So some of the films we've chosen, you know, she wrote or co-wrote the scripts for. Um, She also was a composer, just um, on the side, I mm-hmm. think, just occasionally composed some, some scores or some, some music for, I think, included in some of her films. But So that's what we really wanted to do. So we're lucky to have four weeks that we can dedicate to Lupino, but um, it's really important to show her work and to show not only what she did for film but also for television. Yeah. I mean, she's got two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one yeah, for yeah. each, yeah. right? So, um, yeah, but you see, I mean, she was incredibly important for what she did in Hollywood. Then she shifted to being an independent filmmaker. So her production company, The Filmmakers, worked kind of outside of Hollywood. And then when that fell fell apart, she moved to television, um, kind of seemed to have no qualms about doing so. Yeah. 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 She adapted. Yeah, she adapted really well. And, I mean, a lot of filmmakers did, I think, at the time, and a lot of actors moved into television. You know, they just kind of rolled with the punches. 
Um, but you can really see her kind of work ethic coming out in how well she adapted to the television form and how vast her career was after film. Yeah. One, mm. of, one of the uh, things that I watched to prepare for, for a Lupino discussion was one of her TV episodes, uh, which, and I'm going to forget what the TV show was now, um, but it's, uh, it's up on YouTube, so you can just find it. It only runs for about 25 minutes, uh, and it's called Number 5 Checked Out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this kind of perfect little 25-minute play, essentially, that Lupino directs. And it has, you know, Teresa Wright, um, Peter Laurie, and William Tolman, who mm. plays the hitchhiker uh, in one of her other films. And it's this beautiful, perfect, actually remarkably sweet and tender uh, story between uh, two criminals and Teresa Wright, who is not a criminal, but she is deaf. Uh, and uh, one of the criminals falls in love with her. And at the same time, the other criminal, played by Peter Laurie, is out to, to potentially um, do some terrible things to people. That doesn't sound like him. No, it doesn't. <laughs> All totally typecast. But, I mean, in terms of a, a short, quick 25-minute, you know, play, essentially, it was really tight and, and really tender. The, the fact that she was able to hit those emotional beats so strongly in such a short amount of time is just quite amazing, I thought. Mm. Yeah, I watched that as well, and you can really see that combined, um, you know, f- she had her finger on the pulse of tension in terms of image, sound, shadow, that all of these things she had such skill in depicting in cinematic form yeah. um, that she could just do it in this really, um, you know, tight TV episode. But yeah. also what we see from her earlier career in film is that she was dealing with a lot of these, you know, intense emotional um, social issues that women faced. Mm. And she, I mean, she wouldn't call herself a feminist, I don't think. She was not into that term, but we can see that what she was doing was very in line with kind of what modern day or even, you know, the, the second wave feminists were kind of trying to fight for in that sense. So I think that's where that that tenderness comes from, even in this really, you know, kind of very, you know, essentially cliched, yeah. you know, story, I think. Mm. Yeah, mm. And it's amazing the way she approaches these very uh, kind of difficult, charged topics in a very economical and kind of analytical way, which I think is probably why her style transfers to television so effectively. Like, I I just saw uh, Outrage and The Bigamist recently Mm -hmm. to prepare for this, and we were were talking at the beginning, Mark, just astonishing films. Um, So uh, Outrage, uh, which is about um, a young woman who's about to be married um, who gets uh, raped, and the the rape sequence is quite astonishing. Like in, it occurs in the first 20 minutes of the film. Um, and then the rest of the film kind of explores the aftermath of that for this young woman's life. Uh, and the way uh, Lupino approaches that is just um, so kind of clear eyed and um, uh, direct that it, it's, it's really quite astonishing in a film made in, I think, 1950. Mm. So, and, and doesn't, you know, not to be spoilery, but but it's not like she also then ties things up neatly and everything is okay. You know, outrage ends on on a complicated and hard mm. decision mm-hmm. that has to be made. It's not, and now everything's awesome and I am happy again. It, it's not. It's about trying to find your way back into the world, which is 
hard for somebody who's enjoyed the experiences that, that the, the character has in that film. Yeah, that's so true. And what we get from that where she's not, you know, offering a solution to these things is she's just saying this is what people have to deal with in this world. Mm. And, you know, essentially it's that. I mean, she is often associated with film noir, Mm. but she's also a very kind of, you know, socially conscious director and her plots do both, but she's very into the style of noir. But what we can see is that maybe that worldview of noir where everything is just you know, hopeless kind of translates, but it, it's removed from this expressionistic, like existential noir um, idea. And instead she's just saying, well, no, it's reality. It's not this cinematic idea that the world is hopeless, but it's reality. Yeah. And not that it's hopeless, but just that awful things happen and they stay awful. Yeah. Mm. They don't get better. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the reason her kind of noirish approach is really refreshing is also she... She's not mythologizing male identities in this really overly romantic mm. way. She kind of, in The Hitchhiker as well, kind of is undercutting those um, patriarchal um, mythologies about kind of um, macho bravura and, and in a really um, subtle but, as I said, kind of clear-eyed, analytical, direct way. So The Hitchhiker is kind of a film noir completely stripped of all the um, patriarchal gender politics that film noir is all about and also is completely stripped of the film noir setting. It's set in um, a, a car and the Californian yeah. desert rather than these claustrophobic shadowy cityscapes. And what she's able to do with that even in cinematic uh, style and language, like with the contrast between the claustrophobia of these two men trapped in the car with this psychopathic... Um, escaped murderer, escaped convict, a a murderer who's kind of keeping them hostage in their car. Um, So the shadowy claustrophobia of those scenes contrasted with the wide open space, which is equally claustrophobic of the um, Californian desert, claustrophobic because even though there's so much space, there's no No way that these two men can possibly escape. Um, So it's just, it's it's really effective and, and yeah. yeah. I love what she does as well with the the use of the radio in The Hitchhiker. Mm. So the radio is a really common noir trope um, because it can kind of, uh, I mean, it does a number of things that can, uh, you know, it informs the police force of criminal whereabouts. Um, it's also used, like, listened to by criminals in order to kind of, you know, escape the, the route of their getaway maybe. And in something like Raw Deal, like the criminals, like, trying to get out of San Francisco. He's just escaped from prison and trying to get out of San Francisco and he listens to the radio and he hears that there's a police report of a dragnet around San Francisco and he thinks, oh, you know, well, there's no way out now. So it's used in that way. But in The Hitchhiker, it's quite clever um, because the police intentionally, they kind of plan and they intentionally put information on the radio about where they think that the criminal is going but it's intentionally um, misinformation so as so that the criminal listens to it and thinks, you know, has this false sense yeah. of security. Um, and so I really like how it kind of um, plays with this. It, 
it redirects the tension, I think, rather than kind of giving the viewer a level of comfort that, that what they're listening, that the comfort that the criminal is going to get away, then in fact it kind of suggests that we're not supposed to side with Talman at all. So there's none of this, you're right, like, you know, typical noir kind of um, associations with, with gender and, and yeah. all of that. Mm. See, I watched The Bigamist, which I think of the ones that I, I sat down mm. and watched, I loved yeah. that mm. absolute bits. Because what she does there is she sets up what is ostensibly, I suppose, a pretty awful crime and a moral crime, but at no point is she necessarily casting any of them as villains. I mean, the the final sequences of that are just incredible. With uh, it's uh, Edmund O'Brien, isn't it, um, who is the the man who ultimately you know marries both Joan Fontaine and Ida Lupino, uh, and you know there, there's this this uh, sequence where essentially we're encouraged to see him as somebody who's not such a bad guy. Without detracting from the Without detracting from the fact that he's screwed over these women terribly and it's not kind of necessarily casting him in in an image of the villain. It's the image of somebody who's just been dumb, you know, and and so he's still... And weak, yeah. And we've kind of... You feel sympathy for him, even though... 100%. 100%. He's done these terrible things to these women. And the women themselves, you know, there's a great moment where they just kind of look at each other across mm. a, a room, the two women, and you think, wow, like everything has gone wrong for these people, but he manages to, or she manages to evoke sympathy for every single one of them. Mm. All of them have a valid argument, a valid kind of claim, you know. God, the, the scene though where uh, uh, Edmund O'Brien's character finally kind of runs out on... Um, uh, Jean Fontaine, his yeah, wife, yeah. his his original wife, and just kind of uh, runs out of the house and leaves his assistant to call her to tell her yeah. uh, why he's leaving her yeah. with no uh, explanation. And oh, just to let you know, uh, yes, yeah, so Harry, your husband, yeah. um, has yeah. another, another wife, wife and a baby yeah. <laughs> in way, Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah, so yeah. that that was and the way and and obviously Jean Fontaine's beautiful, yeah. uh, like just painful reaction to that. Yeah. She's so poised. Yeah. And, and yeah. You know, with the, with the, the further kind of twist of the knife being that, you know, she, uh, that Edmund O'Brien and Ida Lupino have had a baby straight off the bat, so to speak, and Joan Fontaine can't get pregnant. And, yeah. and her story is all about her wanting to be able to adopt a child. So it's not just he's a bigamist. He's sort of really done her over in a, in a kind of much more personal, mm. awful way. Yeah, and these, I mean, that kind of similar theme we can see echoed in Not Wanted, right, which is 1949, her first directorial effort, although she was uncredited. So I, I can't remember the name, but some there was a male director initially on the project and he had a heart attack three days into filming. So she was a co-producer and co-screenwriter. So she took on the role of directing this film. Um, and... This is kind of, you know, about a, a, the opening image is of a woman walking slowly, very slowly alone up a hill. So she starts really far away and the credits are rolling and she walks really slowly up a hill. There's a really busy street behind her, like cars going here and there. And you get this sense that this woman is is isolated. She's all alone. This this city is, people are going along their everyday lives behind her. They have, they don't even care who she is. So already, without any plot being revealed... 
And we get the sense that this woman is struggling on her own and within maybe the confines of everyday life, you know, the structures offered by the patriarchy, she has no recourse, no outlet, no support at all. Um, And then it kind of builds up to this really stunning close-up where she's just walked up this hill and then she walks and her her face is a close-up in the camera now. Um, And then the film kind of begins from there. Um, And it's this terrific film about um, kind of a woman who um, thinks that the children are hers, you know, because she's, it's about an unwanted pregnancy and this woman essentially goes, goes a bit nuts. But it's just really, really beautiful the way she generates this sense um, of the woman's struggle without any plot happening (laughs) yet um, Mm. in that moment. Um, And, I mean, she's been kind of compared to people like Lois Webber who made um, Where Are My Children, this uh, abortion birth control, you know, narrative film in the um, 1910s. And so, you know, the fact that she's trying to put these narratives into mainstream cinema again is really important. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I was amazed to learn that she directed uh, one of my favourite The Twilight Zone episodes as well, The Masks, mm-hmm. uh, and the, the only woman, female director in that original uh, yeah. Twilight Zone yeah. series, which is amazing. And obviously The Masks also aligns really well with those the films that we've been talking about, The Bigamist, yeah. Outrage, um, The Hitchhiker even, in that it's f- focused on a small group of people, this one family, and their... Um, their tensions and their how their own personalities create conflict and kind of turmoil, but dialed up to 11 because it's explicitly horror. So I did notice there was, um, in, a, in a few of her films, there were these moments that were um, horror-esque, in Outrage in particular, mm. that, amo- that amazing scene at the festival. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, where, where um, uh, Mala... Marla Powers, Powers yeah. Yeah, 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 who's who's really beautiful in the film, um, is forced to uh, kind of relive the trauma of her rape when she um, gets these unwanted advances from this this um, strange dude at the mm-hmm. festival, and it almost takes on a kind of German expressionist horror kind of um, style at that moment when it all comes flooding back, and she kind of attacks him with a spanner and has to leave the festival and all the festivities going on kind of behind her. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I could see the traces of that um, carried over into uh, The Masks, this classic Twilight Zone episode um, in which the family wear these kind of grotesque masks um, when um, one of the family members is on his deathbed that kind of accentuate their own um, neuroses and very flawed personalities. And then the classic Twilight Zone twist is, of course, that once they finally take the masks off, their faces uh, have moulded into the shape of those masks. So it it, it, it it definitely, I can see how it continues um, her kind of preoccupations and her interest in the, the flawed and complex relationships between a very small group of people and how you kind of can, can delve into the, um, the details of that, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. She's an amazing filmmaker. All of, well, not all of her stuff, but quite a lot of it is fairly accessible online. Yeah, um, I mean, but we do recommend buying uh, do. DVD releases properly. Because Absolutely. The, I mean, not only is the quality better, but obviously it's better to support the restoration industry oh, and everything yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah. But if you are interested in reading more, I mean, because the Melbourne Cinematheque has a, a season coming up and 
um, Senses of Cinema publishes annotations on a lot of the films that we screen. The September issue of Senses of Cinema, which yep. should be out soon, yes. I hope, yes. um, or maybe out by the time this episode is released, um, will feature a lot of annotations. It so will. quite a bit of writing on Ida Lupino's movies. Great. Uh, so if you want to add to this discussion about Ida Lupino and her incredible cinema, um, head over to our Facebook page at censusofcinema.com and leave a comment there on our episode thread. Each month, Mark and I and our third chair will share with you a highlight from the current month, something be it a film, television or otherwise screen-related material that resonated powerfully with us and that we hope you can find meaningful. We've all been doing a lot around Melbourne and in the online landscape recently, so it should be easy to recommend something we've loved this September. Or is that difficult? Is there just too much to love, Mark? There's always too much to love. Um, One of the things that I've loved uh, over the last month is I've finally caught up with a a film that I had heard about and heard was pretty decent and decided to check it out. It's an Australian film called Cargo. Uh, it's directed by Ben Howling and Yolanda Ramka, and uh, it's actually a, a, a feature-length version of their original short film, and I haven't seen the short film yet. Uh, but Cargo has uh, Martin Freeman uh, and uh, Susie Porter, and it's a zombie film, essentially, an Australian zombie film. And, you know, I don't mind a zombie, zombie film, but I'm sort of getting to the end of the zombie cycle and I'm a little bit over the zombies and you've got to do something interesting with the zombies to make me care about that as a genre, at least at this point in time, because we've just had such a glut of them. And this does do something super interesting. So it's a, a zombie film set in Australia uh, where at the time that the, the film begins, the zombie apocalypse has essentially already occurred. And Martin Freeman and Susie Porter are travelling through the Australian outback with their infant child. Uh, and they are trying to avoid all people so that they don't pick up this terrible virus. Um, you know, it, it isn't too spoilery to say that uh, both Susie Porter and Martin Freeman are bitten. And ultimately the film becomes about Martin Freeman's desire to try and find somewhere to take his uninfected daughter before he turns because you have about a 48 hour window before that occurs. And so what it is, is it's about a man trying to find, you know, a a family for his baby daughter. Uh, And, you know, he goes through various kind of travails. It's a little bit like the road in that way. Um, You know, with, uh, uh, who was it? Uh, Viggo Mortensen and Mm -hmm. Cody Smith-McPhee walking through the apocalypse. Um, But the most interesting angle of this film is the fact that as essentially as an Australian narrative, you know, the, the, the whites, we <laughs> colonizers are the ones that have been wiped out. And we start to see in that film, the, the emergence of the indigenous people essentially just reclaiming their land. And so it, yeah, so it's a, a zombie film, but also really a, an interesting discussion about colonialism and about, um, you know, is it weird to say, like, the zombie apocalypse, it's kind of optimistic, you know, at the point where increasingly the Aboriginal characters in this film take on greater and greater significance and offer the sort of uh, future, essentially, for Australia. So awesome. it has this wonderful little political message that I, I really appreciated. It's uh, it's called Cargo, well worth chasing down. Great. Thanks, Mark. Jess? So the film I... Uh 
would recommend people try to hunt down is uh, Mandy, which also showed at MIF, uh, directed by Panos Kazmatos, which is an absolutely amazing name. Um, and so it, I think it's only uh, has like a limited release here in Australia, so you'll have to go looking for it. But um, I know there have been a few screenings at Cinema Nova and places like that. Um, so Mandy is uh, a, a kind of Nicolas Cage revenge thriller poetry it's 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 absolutely <laughs> my favorite subgenre <laughs> yes okay. it's absolutely beautiful like distilled uh everything that is uh most rewarding to watch about nicolas cage into um a very tight um uh kind of revenge thriller that uh skirts the borders of kind of surrealism um and uh just straight out kind of violent horror exploitation. Uh, so it's a very, very, very simple story. Just Nicolas Cage um, lives in uh, the beautiful Shadow Mountains on a, in a cabin um, on the lake with his uh, girlfriend Mandy um, in this uh, vaguely... It's been a while since I've seen it because I saw it at Myth, but I believe it's kind of set vaguely in the 80s, but it's got a very kind of, yeah, 80s aesthetic. It's in line with kind of... Um, obviously the whole 80s nostalgia craze that's going on at the moment and very very similar aesthetics in some ways to Stranger Things. Uh, much more rewarding than, than that series, though, I think, in the way it kind of dials the 80s uh, stylings up to 11. And basically um, Nicolas Cage's kind of ma girlfriend Mandy, they live this idyllic existence together um, and suddenly at, she's uh, kind of spotted wandering around the, near their property by a uh, very sadistic cult um, and uh, the cult leader kind of decides to capture her and um, take him take her for himself basically and the rest of the film is just motivated by Nicolas Cage's quest for bloody revenge um, so it's it's uh, a very strange and disorienting film, but once you get into the rhythm of it and realise that it is um, turning Nicolas Cage's kind of manic energy into audiovisual poetry, it is absolutely um, a treat. It's also um, one of it, it's scored. the The music is composed by uh, Johan Johansson, who um, has written beautiful music yep. for many different films, um, The Arrival, for instance. And he uh, very sadly this is his last film. Yes, yeah, so yeah. he he passed away earlier this year. Um, so this will be um, the last feature film where we get mm. to hear his music and it's um, his typical kind of style, uh, very synth he heavy and experimental but melded with kind of orchestral um, tones and melodies. Um, it reminded me, I don't know if there's many people who play video games out there in Senses of Cinema Land, but it, the score and even the aesthetics reminded me quite a bit of the game No Man's Sky. Um, but it's... Um, it's like when you stumble across some very strange um, 70s or 80s kind of exploitation film that turns out to be an absolute beautiful piece of art watching mm. this film. So I yeah, highly recommend you try and chase this one up, um, even if you're just a fan of Johan Johansson's um, beautiful film soundtracks because it's worth it for that alone. Fantastic. Great. I'm really keen to see that one. Always, what have you got? For us? Uh, well, I had the good fortune this month of being on the Australian Film Critics Association jury for the Czech and Slovak Film Festival. 
um, which was a lot of fun. And me and my two fellow jurors, Stuart Richards, who was on the last yes. episode of this Census podcast, and Zach Hepburn, chose as the winner this film that I have no idea how anyone's going to see. I don't know if it's going to get released in Australia, but, you know, maybe it will screen somewhere or maybe listeners around the world will have a chance to see it. But this film called, uh, the English title is Bear With Us, uh, directed by a, a Czech director, Thomas Pavlicek. Um, we really loved this film and I just wanted to kind of, I mean, it's kind of a very modest film in its own way. Not a lot happens. I mean, it's kind of this family drama, a semi-comedy, but it's really quite surprising in its narrative, in the depth of all of its characters. So it's a big family ensemble. Basically, the, the premise is that this family held, uh, headed by a matriarch figure, own a cottage in the, I don't know, some beautiful forest area in the Czech Republic. And they are selling their cottage because the family, you know, have moved on and grown up and gotten their own um, disparate lives. And so they're selling it to, and they're about to hand over the keys, but the matriarch kind of tries to plan one last reunion at the cottage so the family can all, you know, spend their last weekend there or, or whatever it is. Um, and so that's the premise and it's quite difficult to get all the family there, but there's, you know, a big setup where each child who's now grown up and maybe moved out of the Czech Republic, like comes back and then all of the, um, you know, parents or the middle generation kind of go to the cottage and then everyone else kind of joins. And so I don't know how many characters there are in, in the end, but every single one of them is really well drawn. And that's just what's really pleasurable about this. I think in a lot of family dramas, you maybe will get one or two who are leading the cast and leading the, the plot. But other than that, everyone else will just kind of serve as this background. But in this sense, everyone was really well drawn and really engaging. And I felt on side with every one of them. Um, and so it was really, really fun. And I just feel like I'm never really drawn to films like these that are kind of these just modest narratives. But this one was consistently surprising in, you know, the directions that it took. Um, the comedy was really well-timed and the script was really well-crafted. Um, and the matriarch, so the granny, granny character, was um, really ace as well. And so it kind of had this, I don't know, typical absurd Czech humour, um, but it, it just works really well and I had a great fun time with it. It's kind of a bit of a cynical family. I mean, it's not only warm and, you know, honey, but there's a, like a bit of cynicism in there as well. So I just had a really good time with it and that's why we gave it the, the prize. Um, but, yeah, if you can hunt it down, I highly recommend it. Um, it's beautiful as well. You know, the setting of this cottage is incredible. Fantastic. That sounds amazing. Okay, well, thanks for joining us this month on the Senses of Cinema podcast. Thanks to Eloise Ross, as always, and to our fantastic third chair this month, Jess Balancetegui. Thanks, thanks also to our technical producer, the brilliant Troy Morey, who performs the very simple favour of turning us into coherent human beings every single month. Thanks also to Swinburne University for the use of their recording studio here in beautiful Hawthorne, Melbourne. I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast, and we'll speak with you again next month. <laughs>